Hello and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Rule Doll's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. We review one picture book and one chapter book. We've started out with the books that we loved as kids, but if you've got a book that you love as well, especially if you are currently a kid, then please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com. You can catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod. And on Instagram, we are Even the Trunchbull. We're here in Nina's flat getting the record in person for the second time recently, which feels <laughs> like a real treat. And we're talking about haunted houses and we've got a picture book which is brand new to both of us called Ghosts in the House. And we have a chapter book that is a return of one of the podcast's favourite authors. We have The Monsters of Rookhaven by Patrick Kenny. So I think we're going to start with Ghosts in the House. Yeah, so Ghosts in the House by Kazuna Kahara was also published as The Haunted House, so I think depending on whether you're in the US or the UK, might have a different title, just if you're looking for it. It won the New York Times Best Illustrated Book of the Year when it came out in 2008. It's about a little girl and her cat, and they move into a house, and they soon realise that the house is haunted. It's full of ghosts. Luckily, the little girl knows what to do. She puts on her witch's hat, and her cat puts on its witch's cat outfit, and they go about catching all the ghosts. And then they stick all the ghosts in the washing machine and hang them out to dry. And the ghosts just sort of look like little smiling sheets at this point. And then she finds them each a use in her home. So some of them become curtains, and some of them become tablecloths, and some of them become blankets, and they all live happily ever after. Yeah. It's a, it's a really nice kind of subversion of the idea of haunting, isn't it? Yeah, it's really gentle. It reminded me a lot of Sophie in Hell's Moving Castle when she moves into the moving castle and just starts cleaning everything yeah. to like make it home for herself and to make the unsafe parts of it feel safe to her. Kazuno Kahara is a Japanese author and illustrator and she came to the UK to learn how to make lino cuts, which is what these illustrations are. So... If you imagine it, it's an orange background, very like pumpkin orange, very Halloween, and then just black ink lino cut illustrations. And then the way that the ghosts are made, it almost seems like they've been cut out of baking parchment or something. They're these semi-translucent white shapes sort of glued onto the prints. So it's very, very beautiful. And I've also seen around the internet a lot of little art activities. So I think it's a very interesting jumping off point for art, for talking about art styles. It's really appealing. Yeah, it's very, very pretty. It barely needs the words, to be honest. You could print this without the words. It would work absolutely fine. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. And the the ghosts are all really smiley, as you say. Yeah, they're really non-threatening. Yeah. I love that the little cat has a little suit. And at the end of the at the end of the book, when the, the little girl and the little cat go to bed, you can see her witch's hat hung up and the cat's little cat suit <laughs> <laughs> hanging up. It's um it's very domestic feeling, like the actual prints of the interior of the house are really lovely. And I think my favourite image is all the ghosts hanging out on the line 
Mm. I don't know about you listeners, but seeing washing hanging out on the line with a breeze blowing through it is very well-being inducing in me. I just find it very calming. I like them when they were over the table. I just liked how they'd done that. It's yeah, it, yeah it's this really appealing thing that the the ghosts almost feel like they're from a different style altogether, right? Yes. They're just completely superimposed. They're completely on pasted top. over. Yeah, it's interesting textural work because the ink and the orange paper feel really flat and then it's overlaid with these ghosts that feel glued on. It's a really nice kind of antidote to scary books, this one, isn't it? Well, and at this time of year, coming into Halloween, we start telling children about ghosts and ghouls and werewolves and witches, and it can be actually quite a frightening time. This is a really nice antidote to that. This is a completely safe... Like, the child is very in control. Yeah, she is. It's a bit like that book that we did in the wordless picture books where the little girl seems to be living all on her own, the one who wants a dog. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, It's a book called Lost. Yeah. And it's the same sort of fantasy of a child living alone and getting to make all her own decisions. Yeah. Right? Like, it's sort of this very empowering fantasy for a child that she doesn't need any grown-ups around. Like... Nobody else swoops in and saves her. She comes in, assesses the situation, and is like, okay, I know what to do. I am perfectly capable. Yeah, I just, I quite like the subversion it does in quite a lot of ways. So it's that kind of, it's that subversion of Haunted House where it's like, because I think that thing of like trying to nullify and make safe out of like spooky thing, but it's friendly and safe and fun. Whereas this almost goes beyond that, where it's like, there are ghosts in the house, and that's fine because we just need to put them in the washing machine and then they're going to be really useful. And it's, and like <laughs> I think what really clinches it and brings it together is like that last image for me that is probably my favourite, even more than the tablecloth, of like her lying in bed smiling yeah. and the ghost over her is a sheet. And all of the ghosts just have that like two dot and a curly line smiley yes, face. Yes, that's so lovely. Which humanises it and yeah. makes it friendly. It's not even like ghosts and, oh, they're dangerous, but actually they're not. It's just ghosts, but that's fine because yeah. ghosts are just a thing. And... Well, it's so clever as well, isn't it? Because we've had this idea of, like, a ghost costume is a sheet that you throw over a kid before they go out trick-or-treating, right? Yeah. Like, that's the most basic ghost costume you can have is a sheet. So what if really they were sheets and that's all they are? The little smiles on them are so friendly. I want to give a a special shout out to an art project that both our sisters did once. My sister in sixth form was doing photography. For a final project, she got given life and death as a theme. So her and your sister, they just got a sheet and cut eye holes out. There's a lovely one of them sat in the Baltic Gallery in that little rowing boat across from a little kid who's just looking at her like... And Ruby got slated for it. The teachers told her she hadn't taken it seriously enough, which I thought That's was, rubbish. was criminal. It was such a great project. Oh, do you think you can get the pictures from Ruby? And we could oh, she's the... definitely still got them. We could post these to the social media. It is good art because it's so simple. How do you make ghosts safe? You know, they're just sheets. It's fine. Well, and if you want to take it a little bit more intellectual, it's just dead people. It's just people have died. (laughs) Everybody in the world dies. It's not actually an inherently frightening idea. It's an idea that we've made, you know, culturally associated with, like, very frightening. But not all cultures, you know, there's cultures that do ancestor worship. There's lots of cultures that engage with these ideas in ways that aren't scary. The best picture books time and time again are so sparse. I think you're absolutely right. You, You could 
very well get away with this one with no words. Yeah. It's got a kind of loneliness to it, I think, mm. similar to Lost. Yeah. But it's a cosy loneliness. Like, this little girl's clearly happy. Yeah. You yeah. know, she's got a cat there. Um, but we don't really know anything else about the world around She doesn't... Her. The character doesn't have a name, even. No. It's a it's a nameless character book. Yeah. It's it's very basic, which means that it's a book that you could put in the hands of a very young child, I would say, one and a half. Yeah. And they could read it to themselves yeah. easily. You don't need the printed word. They can make up their own story. They but, could tell it yeah. to you. Particularly as you say this time of year when it's like because it is scary Halloween when you're little. Yeah. And there's so much, you know, every time you go in the supermarket or out on the street there'll be pictures of ghosts and I mean, as it should be, I think yes. that, you know, I, I kind of do buy into that, like, thinning of the barrier between the worlds and stuff. Oh, me you too. Can, you can it's feel fun. that, right? Yeah. Like, you can feel that happening. It's a really nice way of kind of taking that form of a scary story yeah. and just completely subverting it. And as you say, making it completely domestic. Yeah. It's a, it's a safe play with those themes as well. Yeah. Because you can do a lot of scary things with those themes. Yeah. But I think it's interesting, especially for really young children... You know, we have eggs and rabbits at Easter. They're just images that pop up over and over and again. And then you've got presents and trees and Father Christmas at Christmas. And you've got ghosts and witches at Halloween. And before you can even really explain to anyone about the veil between the worlds thinning and, you know, like the autumn equinox and the light and the dark, there's going to be this pattern recognition really early with these images. And I think it's nice to introduce them in a way that is non-threatening. If I'm going to over-intellectualise it again, like, witches... Oh, it's what I do best. <laughs> witches were women who were persecuted for knowing stuff. Witches were overwhelmingly midwives and nurses. Yeah. Um, and also men were burned as witches as well, people who seem to know more than they should know. We might do this book later. It's called A Kind of Spark, and that's about how a lot of the witches were probably autistic. A lot of them were disabled. Right, that's really interesting. Like, p- people who can't follow the proper social script. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, who can't, like, make nice. Like, yeah. you know, the idea of a witch, it came yeah. from misogyny, you know, and not trusting women. Yeah. And so that we still have that in our culture, that, like, women that we consider ugly or a little bit threatening or a little bit too independent, unmarried and old, mm. um, that they're still presented as something threatening... I really like positive representations of witches. I like it in all books. Give me any and all books about cool little girls being witches. Yeah. My favourite thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love the I love the pictures as well of her actually catching the ghosts. Yeah. I think it's maybe the only time we see them without smiles. We yeah, maybe they look get a bit surprised. One or two little round O mouths and it's like... <laughs> You know when you've got like a big bubble blower, like one of those big yes. rings and the bubbles come out and they're all stretched? It's yeah. like that. And she's got a hand around the narrowest point. Yeah. So they're just these streamers that she's like, right, come on you, up we go. I'm very unsurprised that it's won prizes. So who's it for? Really little kids and anyone who's kind of a bit perturbed or sensitive or scared or unsure about Halloween. and Yeah. Um, also... Little girls that want to be witches. Little girls that want to live on their own. Yeah. Little girls who want a cat. Kids who are into art. Kids who are into drawing. Mm-hmm. Any classroom around Halloween time, um, if you're going to be doing some crafts around witchcraft. Shall we move on to Rookhaven? Yeah. Monsters of Rookhaven is set in post-war Britain, and probably more or less dead on 1950. We have two siblings, uh, Tom and Jem, 
who are running away from home, running away from an abusive situation, and their car breaks down in the middle of the woods, and they get out of the car and they stumble across a tear in the world. And through this tear is an old house, guarded by a path of sentient flowers with sharp teeth. And this is the house of Rookhaven, which houses a family of monsters that are just called the family. And these are all people with various different powers. A lot of them are quite uh, classic horror figures. So we have someone who is essentially a vampire. We have someone who can create portals and jump between places. Uh, Someone who's made entirely of spiders. Yeah, it's a very glamorous kind of like 50s. Flapper dress. Yeah, but it's entirely (laughs) made of spiders. (laughs) So the family has been there for a long time. They have like an understanding and an arrangement with the village of Rookhaven. The Covenant. Yeah, by which they agree kind of not to fight each other and the village provides the family with raw meat. Which is what they eat. Yeah. And And in exchange, the family do not come into the village. So around... The house of Rookhaven is the glamour, which is this invisible barrier. But the magic has broken down and there's a tear, which is how the two siblings that we start with have got in. Meanwhile, down in the bowels of this house is another monster that even the family are a bit scared are of. terrified of. <laughs> and this is, this is Piglet. And Piglet is dangerous. It's multi-protagonist, so each chapter heading is a different character's name. Yeah, so it's very YA in that way. It sort of does a lot of head jumping, and it announces at the beginning of every chapter who you're with. We have Tom and Jem, our main protagonist on the family side, as a young girl called Mirabelle. And then in the village, we've also got a young lad called Freddy, and his dad is the butcher and is the one who routinely delivers meat my favourite thing about this is that some of the chapters are from the point of view of Piglet, who is the very dangerous thing in the basement, that we don't see, visually we don't see him for most of the book. We just mm. sort of hear him growling. Yeah, yeah. And you hear about him. You get a chapter from Piglet's point of view, and they're so weird. Well, they're written in a different tense, for start. Yes. So they're written in present tense. Yes, because... Piglet isn't of the past or the future. He's just now all the time. Yeah. Um, and he's pure experience. Yeah. Like, he doesn't do loads of thinking. He does experiencing the now. Yeah. And he does his current emotion right now and his current senses right now. And throughout the book, he kind of learns emotions. Yeah. Right? And you can always tell when a Piglet chapter is coming up because those pages are black with white writing on them so as you're flipping through the book if you see like a dark patch coming up i got really excited i was like oh we're going back to piglet yeah (laughs) so we have to talk about the this book in itself as an object is stunning yes um beautiful beautiful cover so the illustrator is um edward betterson a graphic designer it's stunning the illustrations feel like they're calling towards a victorian woodcutting feel it's not dissimilar um, to the style of Ghosts in the House. Yeah, it's a sim- similar thing going on, but that's kind of then combined with um, occasional very detailed pencil drawings of ravens that we have a lot of. A lot of the pages are black with white text. Most of those are piglet. Some of those are to represent scenes happening at night. The whole thing feels designed 
The design of the house is really beautiful. Yeah. And like right down to like the wallpaper in the house has been designed. But it's really accessible as well. The characters feel like cartoon enough yeah, to be yeah. a kid's book. Split into parts and the, the title page for part three comes the malice. And the page before it is a piglet page. So then you have this lovely effect that, look, if you, if you shine the light through it, you just have oh, this gosh, clawed I, hand I hadn't noticed coming that. through. From That's so clever. All of the piglet pages are black, but some of them are white edge. You know, there feels like a deliberateness there of... When to foreshadow him and when to not. Yeah. When to let him be a surprise. It just, the design is so deliberate and yeah. so beautiful as an object. It's so, incredibly appealing. It's, yeah. It looks cool. If you're judging a book by a cover, which yeah. absolutely do, you want to pick something that looks awesome. This is it. We don't often have two copies of a book, listeners. No, uh, no, we couldn't bear to share. But this we one. couldn't share this one, so we've got one each. <laughs> Should we do Matt's gender corner? We're we going straight into Matt's gender corner. One of the really interesting things of Tim's gender. It actually wasn't my thought, but watching an interview with Patrick, there's a really interesting point made there about gender in that our kind of main protagonists, in a sense, are Mirabelle and Jem. Yeah. So this young sort of just pre-teenage human child and then a yeah. young pre-teenage sort of not human child. And all the world around them is patriarchal. So mm. the village is run by men and the house is run by a man. And that's kind of part of the reason that things go wrong. Yeah. Right? Um, and then that being set just after the war, this whole wider thing of like part of the reason that the whole world has gone so wrong is this patriarchal dominance. And Mirabelle and Jem together kind of act as a foil to that and a, a sort of resistance and opposition to, to that. The phrase Padraig used in that interview as a new leadership. The message we get in this book is that connection overcomes fear. Yeah. And that being led by two female protagonists, I think, is yeah. is a good move. We could also talk about the monstrous femininity of the twins, right? Yes, Dottie and Daisy, haunted house, little pinafore, kind of, hee hee hee, I'm going to yeah. eat your soul, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're horrible. They're not just horrible in a, like, their monster's way. Personally. They're vindictive. They're awful yeah. little girls. Yeah. And I, I feel like... The hyper-femininity is part of the horror of that image. Like, when you see creepy children in horror films, they're not like little tomboy girls mm. or, you know, little sensitive boys. They've they're been dressed up. very clearly yeah. gendered, very clearly marked. This is a boy child or a girl child. They are little bully girls. Yeah. They are. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And they yeah. torment Mirabelle. Yeah. They're just yeah. really mean. Yeah. They're not really redeemed, the twins. They're just kind of horrible people throughout the book. sort of, I mean, they, they kind of <laughs> help out at the end. But also, I don't think everybody needs to be redeemed. Like, mm. I don't think that the inhabitants of the house need to be nice in order to be treated like people. Mm. Actually, you know, there are kind of awful people everywhere and not everybody needs to be a paragon of good to deserve to be treated fairly. So this is set after World War Two. Life in the village is still really shaped by what happened. Yeah, everyone's, everyone's lost grieving someone. someone. It's still these very traditional values, and of course, it's all of this like nationalism and patriotism that gets all drummed up when we have wars, and that's the real evil in this book. 
is this us versus them mentality. They don't belong here. Mm. We need to defend our soil. That's how we got all those young men to send off to be killed. By telling them that the idea of a nation state in a country is worth dying for. Protect your own. Yeah. And that coming from fear and a yeah. time of scarcity, you know, the fact that rationing is going on is really key to the plot of this. Yeah. Because um, it's people going without. Yeah. And clutching onto what is theirs. And that's what feeds the resentment as well, right? Is yeah. that like, we're all tightening our belts, we're all doing without. Why are we sending this free meat to this i mean there's also a class thing going on like mm -hmm. the family is what noble families in houses were called really by the true. servants yeah it's them up in the estate yeah them up in the estate in the big house getting yeah. the good meat yeah and we have to go without and why are they basically implication of the deal is that we do that because otherwise they'll come and suck the blood out on us <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a good point to bring up my favourite written character in maybe any book that I've ever read. We're going to talk about Mr. Phoebe. We're going to talk about Mr. Phoebe. Uh, it's not giving away much to say that he is the main villain. Should we, should we read his yes. intro? So we're with Freddy and his dad, and they're driving the meat van. The man waved at them from the side of the road. He wore a wide-brimmed leather hat and a leather coat so large it looked almost like a tent. They pulled up alongside and the man picked up a battered old holdall and stepped towards the passenger window. He looked to be in his fifties with a lined face and a broad smile. Brown hair streaked with grey spilled out from beneath the brim of his hat. Freddy rolled down the window on his father's instruction and the man leaned in, his impossibly large smile broadening even more. Well, what a nice surprise on a night so filled with unpleasantness. He nodded down the road. I was travelling myself. Alas, my own poor car gave up the ghost quite a way back. He looked contrite. I don't suppose I could trouble you for a lift to the nearest village. Hop in, said Mr Fletcher. The man climbed in beside Freddy and placed his hold all in the footwell. There was a constant clinking from it as if it contained lots of empty milk bottles. He leaned across Freddy to shake Mr Fletcher's hand and Freddy instinctively leaned back to avoid touching him. The man's coat smelt musty and old. It had grey patches of what looked like mildew on it. Arnold Phoebes, said the man, shaking Mr Fletcher's hand vigorously. Frank Fletcher, and this is my son, Freddy. Mr Phoebes settled back in his seat and sighed with satisfaction. And where, pray tell, are we going? asked Mr Phoebes. Freddy didn't like his tone. There was something slightly mocking in it, and Freddy felt as if his father were now being treated like the man's personal chauffeur. But it didn't seem to bother his father. The village of Rookhaven. Mr. Phoebes nodded. A village? How nice. And what a lovely name. He suddenly clenched his fists and thrust his head forward, his eyes wide with excitement. Is there anything on this earth quite like a village? Is there anything to compare to the rigour and strength of its bonds of community and fellowship? Particularly after a time of great darkness. I think not, Mr Fletcher. I think not. What say you? Mr Fletcher nodded. I suppose not, Mr Phoebes. Mr Phoebes pursed his lips and looked rather pleased with himself. You are a kindred spirit, then. And you, young Freddy, do you have any siblings... Freddy felt his chest tighten. He looked at his hands. No, sir, my brother. There was a pause. Mr Fletcher cleared his throat. 
I had an older son, Mr. Phoebes. He fought in the war. My condolences to you and your family, said Mr. Phoebes, closing his eyes in sympathy. Although it must be some small consolation to you that he fought for noble ideals against a great evil and won. It is, said Mr. Fletcher, his voice tight and small in the narrow confines of the cab. What he is as a fascist, right? As I was listening to you there, like, it's not even woolly. He's a fascist. He's like, good old-fashioned English life, best possible thing there is. Yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> he, th- he's post-war fascism. Kind of, yeah. Freddy always has a sense that there's something wrong with him. But nobody else in the village does because mm. he's such a normie. Yeah. He's and he's just, playing into that idea yeah. of, like, we've got to, you know... Stick together. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a really good point. It's a really good analogy, actually, that he is basically doing what Oswald Mosley yeah. did in the 30s, yeah. kind of before the war. I really want to see a film. I think the film rights for this book have been sold. I think I'm too young at the minute, but I think a new life goal is to become like well-known enough by the time I'm in my like late 40s, early 50s to play Mr. Feeps in, in the a remake, remake <laughs> of Rockhaven. He's such a meaty character. Yeah. There are humanising elements even in the darkest villains in this book. Reading Mr. Feeps makes me want to take a shower. Yeah. It makes me feel dirty. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't talked about all the members of the family. Do you think we should? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bertram's a great character. Bertram's my favourite. So within the family, Mm -hmm. and his monster thing is that he turns into a bear. Almost the implication is that his natural form is a bear and then his put on form is this basically what the gay community would call a bear. This is what I was coming to. Bertram is queer, right? 100%. Right. Probably wearing like black and yellow stripes and like polka dot trousers or something, you know. And he's very into his like earthly pleasures. Yeah. He's very sensual. And the thing about the monsters. The reason that they eat meals of raw meat is they can't really taste anything else. Yeah. But Bertram has a quasi-intellectual interest in flavour and in flavours of human food. And so he does these little experiments where he orders some human food from the village and then he tries it and then he can't taste it. Um, And he's got a little (laughs) notebook. He has a little notebook where he keeps notes like, oh, ice cream... Tastes kind of uh, cold? Cold, let's say cold. And everyone's always like, Bertram, you can't taste it. Like, What are you writing in your little notebook? He's like, I can get just a hint. <laughs> yes, that's Bertram. Yeah. Um, he is fabulous. He yes. is absolutely fabulous. One of my favourite characters is Piglet, and I've got a little excerpt from Piglet so you can have a taste of him. Piglet is always hungry. He groans and rolls over in the blackness trying to ignore the rumbling in his belly. He sharpens his teeth and claws. He yearns to be about in the world outside, out where the meat is, where the blood flows, warm and sweet and delicious. And because Piglet doesn't belong to the past, the present or the future, because he is beyond time, he sees things others cannot see, knows things others cannot know. And now he knows one thing above all for certain, Piglet knows that very soon he will be free. That's kind of the vibe of all of Piglet's chapters, is they're written in this present tense, senses forward 
kind of way. Mm-hmm. I really love them. Like every time I saw one coming up, like some like little black edged pages, like oh good, more time with Piglet. Piglet is amoral, I would say. Yeah. He's He's not good and he's not bad. He's just all appetite. He's neutral. Yeah. He's quite compassionate. Yeah. When he gets a chance to be. Which is not often because they keep him locked away and so he doesn't have a lot of experiences with other beings. If you were gonna put it in D and D terms, he'd be chaotic neutral. Yes. <laughs> That's his alignment. Chaotic neutral. Who did you say was your favourite? I think my favourite is someone we've not mentioned yet. There's a character called Dr. Ellenby, who is the village doctor. Yeah. And he's kind of like a grandfather figure. As soon as Jem and Tom arrive, he's there. Because because Tom's sick. He feels like the surrogate for so many people's absent fathers. That's true, yeah. Freddy still has his his brother that Freddy's lost, but his father is kind of absent in that he's so lost in his own grief and inability to communicate. Um, Mirabelle has Enoch as a guardian figure, but again, is very distant. Mm. Um, Jem and Tom have lost both their parents, and Dr. Ellenby feels like he just slots into that role of being a father figure he's to everyone He's very comfortable with it. it, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a boundary crosser as well, right? Like, there are only a very few people that are welcome in the village and in the house. Yeah. And he's that. He's that link. Yeah. He's um, kind of liminal in the same way that the monsters are. Yeah. Just the warmth of his character I'd really like to know. We're finding a theme in Matt's favourite characters in even the Trunchbull, and it's nurturing men. <laughs> Is that a theme? I've not picked up on that. <laughs> not always men. Nurturers. Why? Who else have I gone for? That's um, you've gone for Ira Hat. Yeah. I guess there was Miss Honey back in the Tilda, mm. I think was one of my favourites. He kind of does that. Yeah. Well, that is an interesting Well, thing. and you love Marcosta. You love the nurturer. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. love the person, whatever their gender be, who's acting like everyone's mum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Marcosta being um, the Northern Lights. Yeah. We have a lot of protagonists in this book. Jem and Mirabelle drive it, but Freddy is very much a protagonist. Freddy is our eyes and ears outside of the house, because yeah. all the other main characters stay in that house pretty much the whole book. And so Freddy is really taking the temperature of the community for us a lot. Mm. He walks around the village and he observes other people's grief. Mm. And he also observes like the rising nastiness that starts mm. to coalesce around, but never seeming to come from Mr. Phoebes. Mm. He's that classic horror figure of, like, the child who sees the monster and tries to tell everyone, and everyone says, no, there isn't. He's Bernard in Not Now Bernard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really funny. He's the Cassandra, right? Like, So we're setting up a scaryometer for our chapter books. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to bring this in at an eight... And I think that's purely to leave a bit of room at the top. For the jumbies. For, no, for just anything else that might come, a, come across. I think if we stick it in at an eight and we leave ourselves a bit of wiggle room and we can use this as the yardstick. I think the jumbies are scarier than this. I think the jumbies are slightly scarier, but it's in a similar ballpark. Like, this is a scary book. It's a book that knows it's a genre book and it's a book that knows it's a horror book. And it goes just about as far as it can while staying in the tween rather than YA category. Yeah. There is violence. There is violence. There's grief throughout. 
There's okay. death of a main character. Yeah. The deaths that you see on screen are all fantasy. And so they're somewhat cartoonized. They're somewhat made unreal. But Therefore, they're still pretty visceral. Mm-hmm. It's bloodless. Mm-hmm. It's still a real gut punch. Mm. There's a possibility to kind of, with adult eyes, read this and go, "Oh, this would be far too scary for children," which I don't think it will be because I think it's. I think there are a lot of kids' books that do have fear and horror, and yeah. on the whole, and there are a lot of okay. bloodthirsty little children. Yeah, it's it's scary, and but I think it it telegraphs what it is very well. What we were saying at the beginning, like you're not going to pick up this book and be surprised that it's scary. Yeah. Everything about this book screams, this is kids' horror. There is a sequel, The Shadows of Rookhaven. By the time you listen to this... Yes, it will already be out. And even the Trunchbull will already own two copies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to play with. He's set up quite a lot. He's left himself lots of little doors open. Yeah, there's an implication that this isn't the only family, that there are other families yeah. behind other glamours. So we could travel outside of the village, maybe. Yeah. And then also we have Mirabelle throws Daisy, the dominant creepy twin, through a mirror. Into a mirror while world. While she's invisible. We've got to see some more of the mirror world, right? Like, yeah. That's tantalising. They've kept Edward Bettison on for... The next one as well. Yeah, so really, really looking forward to that. Which just leaves, who's it for? It's for your baby horror fan, your kid who wants to watch horror films but is still slightly too young for them. Mm -hmm. It's for your Padre Kenny fans. Mm -hmm. And like comic book fans, that classic disaster movie monster comic book. Yeah, I mean, in terms of age range, like 10, but up to like 16. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This would be a fun one to read aloud at bedtime. Yeah, yeah. Really dialogue-driven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This is also a good place to announce that we have a guest next month. Yeah, of course. We haven't actually announced that yet. So, next episode, isn't it? Next episode. We have Patrick Kenny himself coming on. Yeah. To chat about Journey to the River Sea. By Eva Ibbotson. Yeah. So look forward to that. Yeah, we're very much looking <laughs> forward so to that. Yeah, we're so excited. We're so geeked on this. <laughs> we we have loved Padraig for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was episode 22 of Even the Trunchbull. Thanks very much for listening. If you've got a book that you loved as a kid or love now as a kid. Get in touch. Or ask a grown-up to get in touch. You can catch us on eventheTrunchful at gmail.com or you can get us on Facebook or Twitter at TrunchfulPod or on Instagram at eventheTrunchful. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. Remember that kids' books can be for everyone because we've all been kids. Even Even the the Trunchful. Trunchful.